Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please turn to Proverbs chapter 30. And, you know, I was going to try to squeeze 30 and 31 in so we finished the book, but, you know, I started preparing and studying and I realized that chapter 30 is um, chock full of so much stuff that I didn't want to cut it short. So we're going to dig in tonight to this chapter, which really weaves the majesty of God throughout it as we see practical applications of wisdom for us to follow. And you know that's the, really the theme of the book of Proverbs, is walking wisely in God's world, uh, just uh, applying those things that we learn to our lives, that we might become uh, more and more like Christ, because that's what he does in sanctification uh, with each of us who submit to his will. Um, but we see God throughout all of these, uh, all of these verses. And um, so you're going to see um, God's providence, God's, God's majesty, his creation, and you're going to see just he is behind all of it, all of these words of wisdom. In uh, the little introduction there in your Bibles, it identifies the author, or as many of the Proverbs, it may not necessarily be the author, it might be the one who compiled these words of wisdom. Maybe they were Solomon's words or one of the other men during that time who would give words of wisdom to be copied down and then given out. We also see the recipients of these words of wisdom, and they were probably students of, of, the, of the author, and in so we are also students of the words that are written in the Bible if we choose to, um, to do that for our lives. So jumping in in verses 1 through 6, it's kind of the introduction to this chapter as well as the author's statement of faith. So the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance. This man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. So those are the two recipients of these words from Agur. Surely I am more stupid than any man. That's a great way to start off, right? <laughs> I'm sure everybody's going to be paying attention now to his words of wisdom. Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So, interesting introductory verses to this chapter. What Agur is saying here is, listen, I don't have any wisdom. 
in my own mind, in my own doing. Everything I have comes from this God who is unfathomable, who is, um, who is hard to understand, whose ways are higher than our ways, um, who, who you can't, can barely touch uh, an understanding of. You know, he says, who's ascended into heaven? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? It's all God. God is majestic in his creation. He's majestic in his salvation. His word to us is pure, and he's a shield to those who put their trust in him. So this is the God who has given him the wisdom to now impart to those, to those um, who were listening at the time and to us. And what he does here, he kind of gives us a perspective on the rest of the chapter, which contains the remainder of lessons for a holy life. So he's telling us right off the bat, listen, I'm going to give you some words to live by. I'm going to give you some wisdom to walk in, but it's not from me. It's from this majestic God. It's like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, and he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with pers- persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be, what? In the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He tells his readers, listen, whatever I tell you is not from the wisdom from man, because that would be meaningless. It's useless. It has to come from a holy God. And so we see that same thing. Verses 2 and, two and 3 speak of the author's need for a Savior in light of his inability to really know much about anything. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you counsel. It's not from my brain. I'm just a stupid man who barely knows anything. But one thing I do know, God is creator. God is sustainer. He's protector. God's son is the Savior of the world. And I need a Savior. So the author goes right to it. And then he says, if I trust in him, he will protect me. How awesome is that? He goes on and and basically says, I can tell you a lot of things, but if it's not backed up by the word of God, it has no power. God's word is true. God's word is pure. And And God reveals himself through the scriptures. So, and then we see a segue sort of to the next section here where he says, uh, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And so uh, Revelation twenty-two eighteen backs that up. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. So we are commanded not to add to the scriptures. They're complete in what they, in what they, the message that they bring to us. And uh, in 2 John, John uh, is in the, is sort of the same vein. He says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And then in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly 
that I have found some of your children walking in truth. So that's the most important thing, to walk in truth. And how do we know what the truth is? Well, we search the scriptures because it says that the scriptures are God's truth to humanity. Then in verses 7 through 9, you know, again, we saw the segue there of speaking of lies. It's, um, we see the introduction to this prayer of Agur. He says, two things I request of you in verse 7. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehoods and lies from me and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the introduction to this prayer is something that we can probably take note of as we pray. And that is to, you know, search our hearts before we come before the Lord in prayer and maybe uh, do a little inventory and say, okay, I'm going to come before the Lord in prayer. Is what I'm going to pray a want or is it a need? And, and what I love about Agor is he says, two things I request of you, God. I've done kind of a self-examination and these are the things that I came up with that I believe are most important in my relationship with you. And he goes on and he says, he prays for truth, to be an upright person who believes and practices the truth, that a lie should not be in him. Remove falsehood and lies from me, verse 8. And then we should be praying that. We should be praying that all the time. You know, there's, there's nothing worse than a, a hypocritical believer. And people will see right through that. In Proverbs 6, it reiterates this thing about a lying tongue and a false witness. In verse 16 through 19, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. And then in verse 19, he goes on and says, a false witness who speaks lies. So we see here that these are things in those verses out of the, out of the six, or out of the seven, two of them speak about lying. So it's important as believers we understand God's word is truth. We want to gain truth from his word. We want to understand truth. And then we want to, we want to demonstrate truth when we, in our interactions with people. And then the other part of the prayer is to rely on God's provision and not to be greedy. You know, the, the prayer that we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer, it tells us to seek our daily bread. You know, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, God told them to gather only enough food for a day. And there's two main reasons for that, and it applies to us. First, that we would go back to the Lord on a daily basis. Do you go back to the Lord every day for provision for that day? And not just food for your body, but food for your soul, food for your spirit, those things that you need refreshment and renewal of. It says his mercies are new each morning. Well, God, I want your mercies every morning. I'm going to come back to you each day because I need that. To keep those lines of communication open on a daily basis. And the other reason is so that we don't fall into the temptation of self-indulgence and, and of greed. You know, just to hoard all of those things. God gives us just what we need. 
And Agar asks neither for too much nor for too, too little. To be satisfied with what God gives us because he knows what sustains us best. best. You know, if we, if we get too much, we'll be t- tempted to walk away from the Lord. How many times in, uh, in times that everything is going great do we kind of forget about God? But then when trouble comes, you know, we, we run back to him. And he also prays not to give me too little, lest I fall into sin or, you know, are tempted to steal just to, just to uh, provide for myself. So very practical, practical things we see here. Verse 10 is sort of an uh, intermediary verse here. It doesn't have anything to do with the other ones before or after. It says, Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. So this instruction kind of comes out of nowhere. It doesn't really fit with anything in this chapter, and that's okay because it must have come to the, uh, to the writer's mind, or maybe, it, again, it was compiled from different sources and he just stuck it in there. What he's telling us here is, basically, and we, we see this in our, in our day-to-day, is not to cause trouble between a worker and, and the boss. And we see that sometimes in the workplace. You know, we know people who like to, you know, badmouth fellow workers to the boss and kind of undercut and undermine them. And we know they probably don't have many friends and they'll eventually be repaid. But, you know, that's just some practical uh, instruction for day-to-day living. Now we're going to begin this next section, and this is why... I realized as I was studying this that it was much more involved than, than what the 33 verses have. There's, this next section is beginning six groups of four things. And within each group, they're all related. So we're going to start from verse uh, 11 to 14 with four wicked generations. And it says in verse 11, there is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. So four wicked generations. The first one. A generation that curses his father and does not bless his mother. The law of God commands us to what? Honor our mother and father. Deuteronomy 5, 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You know, that's one of the commandments that just doesn't say don't do this. It actually gives you reasons why. You should do that. And Jesus reaffirmed that command and, and with a warning, similar to the warning here in Proverbs. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. So do you think Jesus thought that that was important? You know, the writer of the Proverbs uh, puts it right there in the beginning with a wicked generation that curses its father and does not bless 
its mother. And as Christians, we're commanded to live in obedience to God's word. Uh, Moving on, the second wicked generation is the arrogant and conceited generation. In verse 12, there's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. So this is someone who doesn't really see the reality of who they are. They don't see the reality of their wretchedness before, before God. And they probably don't even understand that there's a need for salvation, that there's a need for them to come to the Lord, to repent of their sinful lifestyle, because they don't see themselves like that. And we can see even in today's day, there are people who, and we don't judge, but there are people who don't see the things that they do as, uh, as sinful in God's eyes. There's no need for them to come to the Lord. And this is a generation that is pure in its own eyes. In other words, I'm okay. And yet, they're not washed from, its, from their filthiness. How do we get washed? By trusting the Lord. Because He makes us pure as snow. By His blood. We're only clean and pure if we've given if we've been given the righteousness of a perfect, sinless Lamb of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we know this verse well. For He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are cleansed by Christ because of what He did. And we're also continually cleansed by Christ as we abide in Him. He does that sanctifying work in our lives. It says in John 15, verse 1 to 3, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. See, this is the cleaning uh, job that God does in our lives. You know, when you go out into your garden and you see this overgrown shrub or this overgrown tree, and you start to prune it, and you clean it, and how, how clean it looks. And then you see next season how much more it grows. It's exactly what God does in our lives. And then verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, Jesus says. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because, you know, we need to, there needs, there needs to be some balance in how we see ourselves. Yes, we need to see ourselves sinners in need of a Savior. No question about it. We cannot save ourselves. It's a gift of God. Nothing that we can do will merit salvation. But we also need to see ourselves as worthy of His grace because He died for us. And He willingly exchanged His righteousness for our sin because He loves us. The third wicked generation is the condescending generation. Verse 13, there is a generation. Oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. These are people who just kind of look down on everyone. They think they're better than everyone. They, they strut and they flaunt themselves around. And, you know, as Christians, sometimes we can be accused of that. Sometimes we can be accused of thinking we're better than, than other people. We need to be careful that we don't project that self-righteous or condescending attitude toward others. 
because people aren't really attracted to that. And we're never going to win people to Christ if we project that kind of an attitude. The fourth wicked generation is the cruel and unkind generation. In verse 14, there's a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. So we see the Bible continually teaching us to show compassion and charity toward the poor. And there's even provisions made throughout the Old Testament that show us how much God wants the poor taken care of and not taken advantage of, and that as believers in him that we need to show compassion for that. In Deuteronomy 15, we see here in verse 7 and 8, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. So just practical instruction for us not to look down on the less fortunate in society. As Christians, we should show the love of Christ to, to those people. And here, here at Calvary Chapel, we do a lot of things. There's a lot of ministries that, that take that command and put feet on it and go out and do those things. We have the homeless ministry that goes out to Trenton and ministers to their physical needs as well as spiritual. We have the food for the soul ministry that collects food and distributes it. Um, we, um, we go out to the different nursing homes and uh, assisted living homes in the area with outreaches, with food, and with uh, the ministry of the word. And we also have a, a small food pantry downstairs with, uh, with non-perishable food. If anyone comes in off the street, we, just, we, are, we put a bag together for them and we give them stuff. So this is something that we're commanded to do. And as individuals, you're, um, you're also exhorted to do that. We should allow God to guide us in helping others. And his word can give us instruction. You know, I love the law of gleaning that was actually instituted in the Old Testament that was instituted for several reasons. And that's that there will always be poor among us and that we should take, when, when we have a, an abundance of something that we take joy and we take pride in, we can also take joy that we can demonstrate charity and kindness through the abundance that God has given us. You know, in, in Deuteronomy, we, sh- we see that law that God put into, into place. It says in verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field, and this is instructions for farmers in, the, in that day, and forget a sheaf in the field. Do not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. Look at how God works. He said, he's saying here, when you, when you go and harvest your field, if you leave um, some grain in the field, don't go back for it. Just leave it there. Because uh, maybe uh, someone in need will walk by and they'll see it and they'll be able to come in and they'll be able to feed themselves with that and then and then God will bless the work of your hands because of that because of your kindness and your compassion when you beat your olive trees you shall not go over the boughs again 
It shall be for the stranger. So when you're taking the olives off the tree, don't go back. Leave them there for the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. Don't go back through. Go through once. Be thorough. Be diligent. God's blessed you. God's given you an abundance. But then leave the rest for the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow. So God's um, just his instruction to us all the way throughout the scriptures and to make application for us today. We move on to the next grouping of four things we see in this chapter, and that's four things unquenchable in verses 15 and 16. Interesting language. The leech has two daughters, give and give. (laughs) So we see, you know, the, the leech is something that grabs on and just sucks the life out of something, and it just says give, give, give more, keep giving, and just wants more. It'll never be satisfied. It says there are three things that are never satisfied. Four say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire ne- and the fire never says enough. And we see how this relates to the wickedness of men and that sin is never satisfying. And in Hebrews 11, we, we see here this uh, this faith chapter, speaking of Moses. And in verse 24, the author of of, uh, Hebrews says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. See, sin is pleasurable for a season but it passes very quickly. But what happens with sin is if you continue in it, it'll tend to lead to a desire for even more and more. It'll never really be satisfied. And like a leech that sucks the life out of its prey, sin will suck the life out of a believer if he continues to, um, to just fall to it. And he'll be un- ineffective, ineffective for the kingdom. But these warnings also go beyond just the, unbel- just the believer, but to also the unbeliever as a way of sort of drawing them to a relationship with God. And so the first one here, the grave. Many will fall into sin and be swallowed up by it. In Proverbs 27.20, 20, it says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. We see We understand how sin affects us and how we're never satisfied if we fall into that. The second of four unquenchable things here, the barren womb. And we know that a woman who's unable to give birth just has that longing for a child. Most of of us maybe know someone or ourselves or have someone close to us who's gone through that, and we understand the emotions that are involved with something like that. And it's just that longing, never, never satisfied. The third unquenchable thing is the earth's need for water. And we know that no matter how much it rains, and it might flood from time to time because it's just too much all at once, the earth will eventually drink it all in. And, you know, it may rain for a few days. You don't have to water your garden. But one or two days without rain, and you notice everything's starting to dry up. 
you've got to go out and you have to water again because the earth just continues to soak it in. It's never completely satisfied. And that fourth unquenchable thing is fire. Fire can just continue to burn. As long as you keep feeding it wood, it'll continue to consume it. And it'll burn even hotter. So we see all of these unquenchable things, these things that are never satisfied, and we relate them to sin in our lives because we will never be satisfied if we continue to feed sin. Uh, now a little detour, again in verse 17. You know, I think the author just wants to give us a little break from these groups of four. And he says here, and it's a similar theme, the eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. So again, we see here the importance of obedience to the word of God and obedience to honor our parents or honor those in authority and just that warning that goes along with it. We go back now in verses uh, 18 through 20 to four more things, and these are four things unknowable. Four, four things unknowable. It says in verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four which I do not understand. It says in verse 19, the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. So we see here that there is um, some physical attributes to these verses, but there's also going to be a spiritual application that we make. And then in verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. So the first unknowable thing is an eagle in the air. So we think about the beauty of God's creation. We think about an eagle swift and strong, yet graceful. You know, when we see one, if we ever have the opportunity to catch an eagle flying, just how graceful it is, a beautiful thing to watch. And we think, we think about the beauty of God's creation. The next we see here is, is a serpent on a rock. We look with amazement at a snake as he slithers along a, a smooth rock no legs or any other ability to grip that rock, and yet he slithers swiftly across that rock, and it's just an amazing thing to us. The next, we see a ship in the midst of the sea, a ship floating in the ocean, and we sometimes wonder if we look out maybe in the night and we see the lights of the ship in the distance and we wonder how it's kept afloat, and you know, there's barely a trace of where it's been. It just sort of floats along. The fourth is a way of a man with a virgin. And this virgin, and this speaks of the mystery of how God created man and woman to be together and to complement one another. So we see the natural kind of uh, significance or interpretation of those things, but we can also see a spiritual side to these verses. In the eagle, we see the power of God, you know, just the majesty of that and the swiftness and the gracefulness of it. In the serpent, we see the deception of Satan, right? Who just slithers along, leaves nothing in its, tra in its trail. You never know it's there when it's slithering along a rock. You would never know. 
and yet it was there and it, and it does its thing. And then we see the ship as kind of the believer's journey in this life, just floating along through the sea, sometimes tossed by the waves, sometimes tossed by a storm, and yet being kept afloat by the hand of God. And then man and woman and Christ's relationship to the church. And, you know, Paul speaks about that in, uh, in Ephesians. But all of these things, and this is where verse 20 kind of uh, comes into play, all of these things can be disrupted by sin if we allow ourselves to be overcome with it. So we move on here. The next group of four are four unbearable things. Four unbearable things. It says in verse 21 through 23, For three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four it cannot bear up. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. So the first unbearable thing, or, you know, it's basically things that are... Um, that, are, that kind of disrupt the normal uh, societal roles. It's things that are kind of out of norm. And we see here a servant when he reigns. It's kind of, you know, when the roles of authority are overturned in society. It, 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 we look at it and we say that that's not right. That's not right. It might be, you know, a demonstration in the streets where, you know, the, those who are demonstrating violently overtake law enforcement, or when somebody is suddenly thrust into power, you know, and they weren't, maybe weren't prepared or weren't ready, and they abuse the power that they've been given. And we see that, and it, and it, it makes us wonder, this is not right. There's something wrong here. Second unbearable thing is a fool when he's filled with food. So it speaks of, you know, a foolish person or a person who's not prepared you know, maybe they become wealthy, maybe they, um, you know, come into money all of a sudden, and then they overindulge, and they waste what they received. And we, I think we see this with a lot of the lottery winners throughout the years, that they were just not prepared for what they received, and they actually wind up in worse shape than they were before they, before they won the lottery. So it's unbearable, it just, it doesn't make sense to us. The next unbearable thing is a hateful woman when she's married. You know, <laughs> I think of Job's wife. And it just reminds me of her. In Job 1, verse 22, we see Job here after, you know, after God kind of devastated him, allowed Satan to, to, uh, to afflict him. It says, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. That's a beautiful attitude to have when kind of everything's been taken from you, is that you won't sin and you won't charge God. But listen to the advice that his wife tells him in verse 9 of chapter 2. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, that to me is a hateful woman who shouldn't be married. They just... You know, the relationship is just not going to go anywhere. And if you're a hateful person, my advice would be stay single. Don't drag someone else down with you if you're, if you're that hateful. So that's 
All I have to say about that, and I think that's pretty wise advice. The fourth unbearable thing is a maid servant who succeeds her mistress. And this is, again, somebody who might have uh, been a servant to someone else and maybe inherited their, uh, their riches and then become kind of arrogant and prideful and boastful um, uh, in, in that. And so these all speak of situations where um, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what God intended. And yet they're very common in society uh, even today. So we're going we're gonna to keep going with the next group of four things. And I think we'll be able to finish up tonight. So the next group is things that are small in stature but great in wisdom. Things that are small in stature but great in wisdom. You know, we can take important lessons from the smallest of, of things, the smallest of God's creatures. It shows us that bigger isn't always better. And sometimes God takes the small things and he just multiplies them for his glory. So he gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. And that, you know, in, in our eyes, we, we remain humble. We remain small so that God can work great things through us. So we see that in these. And in verses 24 through 28, there are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with his hands and is in king's palaces. So we pretty much know most of these. And we see the first small thing that the first thing that is small in stature but great in wisdom is ants. And we know from observing ants that they're very industrious, they're very social, and there's so much to learn from them about how God can take the smallest thing and make it great and give us lessons from it because he has touched it. You can do that with your life. You may think you have nothing to offer. But when you step out in faith, God will multiply your offering to be used for greatness in the kingdom. And then it's nothing of you. It's all of God. The second thing here is the rock badger. And it shows us again that this small creature can, uh, who climbs really high into the mountains to make their dens shows us the wisdom, give, wisdom given to them by God to provide refuge from predators, and from the weather. And I think the lesson for us here is don't ever think that you can't ascend high into the plan and purpose that God has for you. He will take you to heights that you've never imagined if you just rest in his power and uh, just allow him to do the work in your life. The third small thing is the locust. So we take a lesson from the locusts that they all work together for one purpose and for the benefit of the group. And I think as the body of Christ, we can see that, that when we all work together, we should be working for that single purpose of glorifying God. And, you know, Christ is that king. You know, it says the locusts 
uh, have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. But Christ is our king. We should be following him as we advance in the kingdom, not for our own benefit, but for his glory. You know, and just speaking of the, the body of Christ working together, Romans, Paul writes in Romans 12, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So that's how the body of Christ is supposed to work. We're individual. We all have our gifts and abilities that God's given to us to be used in the kingdom for his purposes, for the benefit of all. And, so, and then we become not only members of the body of Christ, but members collectively with one another. And that's, a, that's really exactly how the church is supposed to work. And then the fourth small thing is the spider. And, you know, when you see a spider, just the awesome design in the web, and he spins it so beautifully, and, um, you know, he makes his home a- anywhere. It could be in a, a humble home or in the king's palace. It shows us the hard work, and, and through trusting God, we can accomplish great things. And again, he gets all the glory. So we're just going to uh, finish up with these last group of four things. And then after that, it's sort of a, uh, a closing statement by the, by the author. So the last group of four things is kind of the opposite of the previous group. These are four great things which God empowers. These, you can see, are considered great, powerful, and confident creatures. But we have to realize that even in these grand creatures, God has to be acknowledged as the strength behind them. You know, we shouldn't admire the creature without acknowledging the Creator. And in verses 29 through 31, there are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. So we see here the first grand thing is the king of the forest, the lion. You know, a creature which fears no other. And to make application to ourselves in the Lord, we can move bravely through whatever God has for us, knowing that if He's directing us, He's protecting us from those things that are out there. The next grand thing that the uh, author speaks of is a greyhound, a swift and agile being. I know a lot of us see greyhounds after they've retired and they kind of just lay around a lot, but they were meant to be swift and agile. And just how God can empower us to move throughout the world and throughout our lives for whatever he has for us, to lean on him and to allow him to guide us, and he'll guide us past any of the obstacles that come before us for his purposes. The third grand thing here is the male goat, and this represents just a confident leader who will hear from God and others will follow him because he's hearing from the Lord. And this is where we need to be as Christians. We need to be in a place of not only following but also leading because there have been people put in our lives who will follow us as we follow Jesus Christ and we're meant 
to lead them as God directs those relationships. The fourth grand thing is a king. And this teaches us that, you know, if we're in positions of leadership, which we all are in some aspects of our lives, we are in positions of leadership, whether it's in our homes or our workplaces or within the body of Christ, that, that people will follow the ones that they respect. And we need to just gain the respect of people by living upright lives and not being uh, hypocritical and, and doing all the things that we know would honor God. And parents, I think, um, can learn a lot from this, these verses too, especially this last one, that if we're in positions of leadership in the home, that we need to gain the respect of our children and not to just come down <clears throat> with discipline and no respect. In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. If you have a position of authority or a position of leadership, whether it's in the home or anywhere else, do it with respect for the people that you're in authority over and, and gain their respect, and then they'll follow you and they'll listen to you. Then the final verses here, 32 and 33, we'll just read them and then we'll, I'll just give a quick um, explanation. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter and wringing the nose produces blood, so the forth, forcing of wrath produces strife. Don't be foolish, it's saying here, in pride and in arrogance. Learn to subdue your, maybe your overactive passions, which might create conflict. God wants us all to live in harmony with one another and to learn to work together for his purposes. And, you know, just to pull all of these things together, lean on him, lean on his strength, give him the glory for everything and anything that he may accomplish through us. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.